The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to The Video Insiders. Dror, it is great to be on the microphone with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. I'm very happy to open our 2021 season of the podcast with you, our first uh, episode of this year. Well, 2021, uh, it's, it's super exciting. Of course, 2020, what happened in video. And, you know, we had a number of episodes, um, you know, that really talked about that. Uh, but we have an episode today that is about innovation. And um, there is, uh, you know, so much happening in, of course, technology and uh, uh, new codecs and codec adoption and business models. And we're seeing streaming services, some just absolutely explode. Right. Um, and, and in fact, I'd say across the board, video is exploding. So that's no secret to our audience, of course, who works in the middle of video. So today we are talking with Jeremy Toman from uh, Warner Media. And Jeremy is vice president of product at, at Warner Media Innovation. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks, guys. Fun to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. You know, we were talking uh, before we started recording about um, uh, you and I uh, years ago uh, sort of followed each other around on the speaker circuit. And you were super passionate um, at the time about second screen and discovery. And I'm, I'm sure you probably still are. So tell us what you're up to these days. What are you doing? First of all, still just as passionate about the, the space as I've ever been. Uh, I think it's such a crazy time if you're in the video business. Every year feels like it's the the list of unprecedented things happening. You know, last year, obviously, as you guys were talking about at the beginning, COVID affected so much of our industry. But even without it, there's just so much change going on. It's, it's really a, a fun time to be in this space. And so I'm kicking it now over at Warner Media, running product and technology in our innovation lab, which you can think of more as a cross-functional new product center rather than, you know, the picture of an innovation lab. Often people think like we're off in a little bunker somewhere working like with beakers on the, you know. Yeah, with beaker in, in the Muppet Labs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like we're working at like what will happen when all of movies are done with holographs or something. Yeah. Like that's not actually what we're doing. We're looking at the next couple of years as a horizon and how do we help the company really leapfrog its technology prowess in wherever we're going. So whether that's at core, hardcore tech, streaming tech, storage tech, et cetera, all the way up to the consumer experience, uh, our, our team looks at cross Warner functions because obviously between CNN and Bleacher and HBO and all of the brands we have, tons of innovation already going on across the company, but we're kind of a, a multi-department perspective on things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's awesome. And I know all of us are super excited about um, Warner releasing your slate of movies in 2021 directly to streaming as well as in the theater. Um, that's like super cool. So that's some business model innovation there. Uh, first of all, I, I'm not in that group who gets to make those kind of decisions. I wish I was. But uh, I, I remember when I saw the news hit the wire there, how impressed I was at that kind of a decision because we're in the industry where there's still more money, as you guys know, more money is made through what we would probably call outdated platforms than where the action has shifted to. So as we watch those platforms reinvent themselves, reemerge, rediscover what they're here for, 
I think it creates all sorts of new business opportunities like what uh, decision Kyler made earlier this year. But I also think that the same thing becomes true for theaters, for streaming services, for smart TV makers. Everybody in the ecosystem has to simply do what we all do, react to the ever-changing world, make new decisions, find new opportunities, and, and go after them. Obviously, it's, it's a harder thing to do in the midst of a pandemic, but I think it's really a clever move and, and a good one for the long-term health of our industry. Yeah, that's right. You, you always need to, um, to rethink what you're doing and try to adapt your business and your technology um, uh, to what is going on. And it, it's pretty obvious that we're in the middle of some uh, revolution with, uh, with OTT services. And uh, more and more people are looking uh, for content that comes uh, uh, over the top with uh, the choice that this content uh, brings and uh, the various ways you can uh, consume it. And what we are seeing is that the OTT services, which previously were kind of an add-on to the traditional services, they were kind of um, the novelty. Now they're becoming the mainstream, right? That's right. And the interesting thing is that they don't yet represent the mainstream mix of revenue. So we have the user behavior pattern that's, that's clearly established and clearly changing and fluctuating over time. But we have yet to see our industry really catch up to what our users are doing, which is always, you know, it, it's like the big delta, right? It means some things are going to have to change. With that comes some amazing growth opportunities and some outdated business models that are going to need to re-up themselves, right? We saw two years ago now the, the attempts uh, didn't work out for MoviePass as an example, but yet we see other pass-like features class pass and, uh, and and the food ones and things like that. So I, I always think about how is our industry going to be learning and reacting from changes and opportunities we see in other industries? Like what are we going to learn from the food industry or, or the or the gym industry or education industry that we can bring to the video world? Because I'm sure there's a lot out there that, that they're experiencing through the pandemic and even when it's over that we'll all be able to leverage as well. So I have a, a question for you, especially since you have focused so much on the second screen and, you know, shall we say um, alternative devices. And, and of course, I think we can all agree that there kind of nowadays is no second screen. Like it's whatever screens in front of you. <laughs> That's the primary screen. Right. But my question is, we used to have to think about the TV as kind of one ecosystem, um, you know, whether that was delivering content directly to a connected television or through a Roku box or a game console or something, but you know, the big screen. And then the second ecosystem was like the mobile device, you know, whether that was literally a phone or tablet or, or even a PC for that, but you know, alternative device. But as the consumer behavior is flipped to really OTT, what do you think was the primary driver or is the primary driver? Is it portability? You know, is it just, hey, I want my content everywhere, anywhere, anytime? Or is there some other consumer behavior that's driven that? Or, you know, how do you how do you think about that as you look at devices? That's a that's a great question, Mark. I think for one, you know, like I'm not I know I'm no uh, psychologist, but it seems very obvious that humans really, really, really like have whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, right now, probably for free, probably without an ad, right? Like we know that that's what people choose, whether it's good for us and provides the best way to do things, different, different conversation. So I think there's the inevitable rush toward make it easy for audiences 
to watch whatever content. I'm not just speaking on behalf of Warner, but uh, Disney, um, uh, uh, Fox, uh, NBC, Peacock, etc. If you have content right now, you know your audience wants that content right now. But we also are still seeing interesting patterns that, that have yet to, to fix. Like we see Netflix when they drop a show. It's the whole season all dropped at once. Whereas we're watching Disney Plus as the, as the counterexample, or, or HBO also. We, every week we get a Mandalorian or, or a Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country or things like that. So I think the everything at my fingertips concept has really driven that rush toward, toward flipping the consumer behavior. When it comes to devices, you know, from what I read and what I see, I don't know how much the consumer cares anymore. It's almost like the fear we all had of being dumb pipes shifted to being like, we're all a bunch of dumb boxes. Like I remember, I've been in the shift to OTT since the late 90s. A product I'd worked on called the Slingbox in 2004 was the first thing that let you move your TV stream or service to another screen somewhere else. That was 2004. And when we think about what you can do at your device's fingertips now, it's pretty insane. Literally all the devices I have can get me all the content I want. I am curious to see how much uh, new walled gardens will emerge over the next few years, right? Can Apple keep their iOS or tvOS, et cetera, ecosystems as tightly wound together as they have in the past? Uh, where does Roku fit into that? Where does Chromecast fit into the next world? I think it's an interesting new shift that we're, we're seeing. We have watched the HBO Max Roku Fire TV um, challenges over the past year really bring a lot of these issues to mainstream news, right? People now became aware and all of a sudden realized not everything's on everything because of business reasons, right? We have huge, huge deals to be worked out between all these companies. So I think that'll be an interesting, I don't know if I want to say battleground of the next couple of years, but, but watching how each of the device makers looks at their own ecosystems especially for the ones where it's a little more complicated, like both Amazon and Apple make the hardware and make the content. So it's a, it's, it's going to be fun to watch that, I think. <laughs> Definitely. What about ATSC3? You know, uh, it's interesting. We're talking about anytime, anywhere, you know, for free content. And yet we've got this pretty amazing technology, ATSC3.0, and yet it's still kind of in trial and kind of, you know, there's a, I'm in Phoenix. And so, you know, we're a test market here, but basically it's not really available yet. What's going on there? Yeah. I, I think you actually summarize it really well. The challenge of getting a new standard to market these days has become really, really complex. And given that we are basically dealing with a vestigial model, which is broadcast. And, and again, I'm not, um, I'm not criticizing the broadcast industry one bit. We need it. It is, again, the bulk of revenue, but it is still an older way of doing things. And because of that, and I would say watching the, the revenue dollars shift from broadcast to stream slowly, but still happening, probably has slowed down the adoption process of a new platform and new tech. Because I agree with you, like this is a way that the broadcast industry can actually find some, some rebirth and, and look at it as an opportunistic way to do new things uh, do things on services that maybe we don't get the equivalent of in an OTT service. And I don't really know what the blanket solution might be because it, it does have such a heavy impact on the on the industry, both on the hardware side, content side, programming side, device making side. So I understand why it's held up. It's unfortunate it's held up. I don't know exactly how to get everybody to pull those triggers. 
Because the last thing you want is to rush a standard to market that doesn't quite actually work out the way everybody needed it to. It's a, it's a tricky challenge. Yeah, it, it has its benefits, of course. You have like zero delay and infinite uh, capacity when you broadcast ATSC 3.0 to the devices. You're not limited by anything. But on the other hand, you need either hardware support in your device, whether it's a, a TV or a set-up box or a mobile device, or you have maybe a home router that receives ATSC and then can stream it um, over Wi-Fi to the devices in your home. But then what happens with those devices when you leave your home? Um, so, so that's complicated. And then there's the whole issue of spectrum. How do you switch from your current ATSC broadcast to ATSC 3.0? You know, how, how do you do this conversion and still support your existing users? Uh, so it's, it's really complicated. On one hand, it's, it's very promising. And on the other hand, uh, it has significant challenges. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I agree with everything you're saying. Back in the early teens, around 2013 or 14-ish, I can't exactly remember, I was uh, in a meeting with a bunch of execs from one of the broadcast networks, actually, back when I was doing my startup Digit. And one of the interesting revelations that came out of that meeting is we started just sort of on a side tangent talking about high-def broadcasting. And they made the comment at the time that that if they had been given the choice from a business perspective, the shift to high def would have taken years longer. Years. And the reasoning being, it was so expensive to upgrade all of the equipment everywhere, right? Editing equipment, cameras, broadcast, relays, all the work that had to be done just to enable the infrastructure, just to give audiences basically better quality content that they already were getting and would not pay more money for. What to us as maybe outsiders of like those those core inner sanctum meetings might be sound foolish. Like how could you not rush to high def? You start to realize like it, it's not only not cheap, it's not an easy decision uh, to commit that kind of capital into a shift that it's hard to show what the, the payoff might be. So I wonder sometimes like when do you reach that point where the standard is outdated, doesn't provide what the, what the world needs, and yet somehow sort of ekes out a living without progress happening. I think about like high def radio and how much that basically just didn't really happen. Despite if you'd ever heard the, the, the shift, it was amazing. Right, right. But satellite radio did work because there was a real need for that, for mobility and, you know, not having to switch channels as you go on the highway. Exactly. So I look at it like that, like it could be ATSC3 or it could be a fundamental equivalent of an over-the-top move that happens elsewhere that maybe leaves a lot of people like, wait, we thought we were going down this path, but yet a whole different path has to emerge. This is really interesting because this is a perennial problem in the industry. And for those of us who are technologists and especially those of us on the vendor side, you know, who are developing these really exciting enabling technologies and, of course, then wanting to sell them. Think of like UHD. It's a mirror to the HD discussion that you had with those executives. To the consumer, it's incredible. I mean, 4K absolutely looks better. It's it's an amazing experience when it's done right. And yet here you have content owners or platforms who are sitting here going, but how do I monetize it? And yes, you know, in VOD, you know, like Voodoo, um, generally, uh, I, I think the 4K title is maybe a dollar more, um, although I think now they've just homogenized it, there's just one rental price and it's, you know, whichever resolution you, you know, your, your, your device will accept. So, you know, but still you think, okay, so I can tack on a dollar, but you know, it takes a lot of dollars to add up and make it significant. 
significant revenue, you know? I think that's well said, Mark. I think I think historically that's what it's always been, right? It's it's sort of the same way the mobile industry works with getting, you know, 5G is now out there. And I don't know how many what the path is before we all make money off that. The same with Fios. I mean, I don't know what the final write-offs went to CapEx on Fios. <laughs> billions and billions. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sure that factors into a lot of these decisions too, right? Like, oh, so we're going to record everything in 4K, but what if nobody ever cares, right? And that, that those challenges emerge. Thankfully, though, a lot of the tech is inevitable, right? Camera tech is always benefiting from new cell phones, right? So the entire camera industry gets to push ahead more rapidly. We all need bandwidth for everything from, you know, the gaming industry pushes the requirement for bandwidth to go up and we, the media industry, benefit from that improvement. So the interwoven nature of our of the tech and media and OTT and, and even I would say again, gaming and all content landscapes, actually I think we all benefit from each other in quite a few ways. Sure, sure. Now, you know, we can figure out a business model to get this great, you know, 4K, awesome looking video, but if you can't find it, <laughs> if you can't discover it, right. um, you know, so so let's talk about discovery because, you know, I also know you spent a lot of time um, thinking about this as well and love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how we solve this problem. I, I, I was thinking as we were preparing for this interview, you know, um, it used to be 500 channels and nothing's on, you know, and I'm referring to when we all had the big cable packages. Well, now it's like 500,000 videos and I can't find anything to watch. Right. <laughs> you know? With the 500 so. channels, at least you could just zap, you know, zap yeah, here, zap yeah. there, try to yeah, see something. Exactly. But here you have to, you know, start switching between different apps and search content in each one of those apps. So is, is there some solution to this um, problem of finding what you want to watch? Well, I, I don't know when that problem truly goes away. So, uh, Mark, you know me, you, you know that I had a whole startup dedicated to trying to solve that problem. And we got we got bought for the work we did. And I would say the problem is still just as prevalent as it's ever been. The way I've started to think about it is I actually have shifted my own mindset. I'm not going to say there's no such thing as a discovery problem because there is. But I've shifted my mindset and, and where I focus right now, in my eyes, it's less about pure content discovery and it's more about content adoption. Uh, and what I mean by that is between your whatever services you all subscribe to, how many things are in your queues? You, you mean the list that I'm going to watch soon? Uh-huh. Yeah, the I'm going to watch list. I'll preface by saying I must have across HBO Max, Netflix, Hulu, and Prime if there's less than a hundred titles amongst all four services, I would be surprised. Maybe 70 at the bottom end. I would agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think mine would be about the same. Drawer is similar? Um, well, we have less options here in Israel. So I would say I have anywhere between um, 40 and 50. Yeah. Something like that. So fair enough, which still goes back to say you don't really have a discovery problem. What you have is a commitment problem. And you have an adoption problem. And I've been thinking about this actually a tremendous amount and trying to figure out what is the essence that makes going through those lists hard? Because it is. It's a challenge when you don't know what you want to watch. Uh, and, and it's an interesting shift, by the way. Back at Sling Media, where we had nothing but live TV and a little bit of TiVo, 94% of the time when someone sat, so this is 2004, I remember this stat, 94% of the time when someone would sit down to watch something on TV, they knew exactly what they wanted to watch. 
as that went from the end of the first episode into what do you watch next, that confidence rate went from 94 down to, I believe, the 70s. I, I, I am, I'm getting older, so I forget some of my numbers. But people still, generally speaking, knew I'm going to sit down and watch, say, The West Wing, and then I'm going to watch, say, The Office or whatever the pair might be. Today, there's no such thing. So what are the factors that cause us to look at our endless lists and lists and lists of shows we want to watch? In an era, by the way, with some of the best content ever been made. And we sit there and we spend, on average, 22 minutes per household determining what to watch tonight. So there's something clearly off there. Uh, and, and my hunch is that there's something about the notion of watching a season one, episode one of a thing that feels much, much more onerous than simply, say, putting on a YouTube video or even less, say, putting on a TikTok. I don't know if it's because we know it's going to take us two, three, maybe four, five episodes of a show before we realize if we like it or not. I, I don't know if it's because it just feels like work. I don't know if it's a commitment problem, which is, again, where my, my hunch is. But I think that that problem around discovery has really shifted to getting people out of the mode of what's a show I might be interested in watching to what's a show I might be interested in watching right now. You know, And I've been meeting actually with some interesting startups, including a couple out of Israel, that look at that problem slightly differently. Instead of looking at things like, oh, you've watched a lot of movies with Matt Damon and you tend to like spy thrillers, so here's another one. Instead, look at things like people who finished watching The Bourne Ultimatum on a Tuesday night at 7.30 on a smart TV using this service are more likely to go on to watch something like this next. And that's where I'm finding it really fascinating and looking, using different types of machine learning and AI technologies I think we're going to have some really, really insightful breakthroughs over the next couple of years that help us understand audience behavior patterns at a much, much deeper level than we do today. I would argue that we're we're still at sort of a kindergarten level of understanding how audiences really move through content. And between now and let's call it 2024, 25, we're going to go get some PhDs together. That, that's my personal hunch uh, and for those of you who are beyond kindergarten level and are angry at me right now, I don't mean uh, any offense by it. <laughs> so uh, eventually the AI will know better than us what we want to watch now. I think so. I think, you know, if you look at recommendation systems and Mark, to your original question around discovery, most of the algorithms are not AI built. They're much more simple pattern matching. Uh, you have collaborative filtering, which is the technology that helps other, if other people watch this, then they watch that. You have genre mapping, you have interest graph mapping. You know, at my startup digit, we did this really, what I thought was a particularly interesting slant is that we used a dictionary and, and the word descriptions of shows to try to find uh, matching interests. So if you watch the episode of Friends where they go kite surfing, we might recommend a kite surfing ch championship on ESPN or something like something a little different. But still, not AI, not, not clever, just a different way of doing rote processing of stuff. So that's where I think things could get really fun to watch over the next couple of years. Now, where are we going to get the data? Because this sounds super exciting and it makes a lot of sense, you know, to really go granular into the behavior, you know, even looking at the platform someone's watching, uh, because 
there is a very strong case that your behavior shifts if you're in front of the big screen than if you're in front of uh, a mobile device, you know, um, or if you're mobile versus being at home or whatever. But how do we get all of that data? Yeah, you need you need a lot of data and you need data that is across different applications that are not always controlled by the same vendor. That's right. Good question. I mean, I, I get to be a little... Uh one-sided on this one and being at the company where we we happen to own most of that kind of data because we're part of at and and so the, the the data we sit on is just fascinating uh actually i did a data project last year looking at some household viewing trends first to say was was, was really blown away at how well my company actually handles user data like it's still a new field for me and you you know you read everything about online privacy i was i was actually really impressed with how sensitive the company handles that data but once we started to get under under the hood and stop, you know, with all PII stripped out and everything that, that's being done in the right way, being able to look at usage patterns across devices, across channels, across systems, across households, across mobile, there there is a lot to be learned from in, in, in all there. I do think there's enough data happening on mobile devices that makes the playing field a little more level for everybody, right? If you're Netflix, for example, or you're Hulu, you don't necessarily have to care what the user patterns of an HBO Max subscriber are. You just have to care about the user patterns of a Netflix subscriber. It's not. Yeah, that's true because you're not, because Netflix is not making a recommendation to Disney plus, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like they would probably benefit from knowing I watched Wonder Woman 84 or I watched uh, Avengers Infinity War, but fundamentally, yeah, it, it's, it's for their own data set. So I, I think that's why you see so much movement in the data science field in the media and content companies happening today. So, uh, I mean, I'm going to ask a question. I assume the answer is yes to, but Warner Media must have a data science team. My, my little uh, innovation department here just happens to be inside the same organization that runs data sciences. So, uh, yeah, we have quite the data team. I get to partner up with them on a lot of projects. And That's it's just, awesome. it's so much fun. Like, I got to say, I, I, could, I don't have the mind for it, but getting to hang out with the data science folks and, and learning from them and the way they approach things for a geeky guy like me it's it's a little it's as fun as watching a tv show in times <laughs> so you know you know it's super interesting in 2000 i guess it was about 2008 um at voodoo we made our first data science hire and i remember you know we brought someone in who was truly a data scientist and and it was all in just the early 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 stages of you know trying to say Geez, at the, and at the time, you know, I, I don't know, we had 5,000 or maybe 20,000 titles in the library, which at the time was huge, right? You know, so when, you know, when you think about it, but of course now it's nothing, but still, even then it was important to start thinking about how we're going to make recommendations, you know, and make them intelligently and, you know, and understand user behavior and all of that. Yeah. It's a fascinating space. Yeah, and it's a very important asset for a company. All of that data it's just that you're sitting on. It is, absolutely, yeah. Well, so, you know, let, let's continue in this kind of AI since um, it appears that that's probably a major focus for you, right? Is AI and ML in terms of innovation? I would say that what AI and ML bring to product development and, and, and eventually consumer experiences will be just as sweeping and impactful as as the internet was to so many things themselves. Like we wouldn't have OTT without the internet, of course. The the same way that, that it enabled so many things that no one ever thought of, I think ML is gonna ML in particular is gonna do much of the same. I listened yesterday to a Beatles album generated by an AI platform. A new album, new songs? 
Yes. And and it's gibberishy. So it's not like it's not going to go in my Spotify uh, 2021 rewind, but it's um, fascinating because it, it basically sounded like someone had put the Beatles on in the background and I didn't quite hear it. Well, like if I was at a restaurant and that was playing, I'd be like, oh, they're they're playing the Beatles. What? What song is that? <laughs> yeah, what song is that? Yeah, exactly. Wow. But the, the point that the technology is able to do that now, and given that it builds on itself, I mean, you're, that means you're five years away from, or, or maybe, I don't know, eight, maybe two, from someone creating an actual AI-driven song that sounds exactly like John Lennon singing it, right? Like, that's no longer out of the imagination. And, and if we're not thinking about what that can be done, uh, I, I think... I think it's too easy to be able to make these scenarios right now. I played with an open AI platform called GPT-3. And if you're listening to this and you don't know what we're talking about, search for, do a quick Google search for GPT-3 movie or film or, or short film or something like that. You'll, you'll find it pretty quick. But basically a GPT-3 engine, which is the third generation of an AI platform by a company called OpenAI. And I'm generalizing for, uh, for people who aren't familiar. I'm, <laughs> a lot of people are behind it. It's basically reached the point where it can create content. And that content is not what we would consider good, but it's far, far away from what we would have laughed at. So I played with a, a GPT-3-powered engine that's basically a, a story, storytelling platform. It asks you to, to seed it with a story. So you could paste in the opening of anything from the Declaration of Independence to Shakespeare, and after one paragraph, it'll then give you three more paragraphs of a fictional story that it creates in real time. So I gave it a thing about my, I just basically said, I have three kids, uh, or I think I name my kids, and they are this age, and they like to play in the woods and go for hikes and do this and do that. And then one day, dot, 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 I then received a three paragraph thing that was basically like, one day while out in the woods, they discovered a wolf, but not a regular wolf, a giant wolf with a brain the size of Elon Musk's. I swear to God, that's what it said. <laughs> Other than that phrase, a brain the size of Elon Musk's, the entire rest of the story, it could have been from just a sort of generic children's book. It was very telling otherwise. Again, it's 2021 and that technology is here now. So when we think about what this is going to bring to us, it's going to bring to us original landscapes. It's going to bring to us new backgrounds. Like, you know, they their film The Mandalorian where all of the backgrounds are done in a video game engine, right? It's all powered through Unity. So what happens when you have an AI platform generating worlds and landscapes in real time and telling stories against them in real time? That's coming. That's soon. We've talked about recommendation algorithms. When a platform knows which device I'm in, what part of my house I'm in, right? I've, everybody's got room extenders and Eros and things like that. Think about how much smarter a recommendation system can get. When that's then linked, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I use uh, Gmail or G Suite to write anything and the uh, suggested words start showing up. Oh my, yeah, like, it's amazing. Amazing, right? So now what happens when those two systems know each other a bit better? Or do I want to opt in to letting Siri or Alexa know more about my phone calls with my friends? Like, oh, yeah, I was just talking to my buddy Jeff about uh, Watchmen. Do I want that to tell me, hey, maybe tonight you should watch 
Uh, Umbrella Academy, right? Like, I, I don't know, right? We don't know. This is, this is again, going to be bold new worlds. But with the amount of data we're collecting, as you guys were talking about before, combined with the, the pace that those technologies are going, I think we're going to be seeing AI play a role in every single aspect of the home entertainment landscape. Mm-hmm. So content recommendation is one, but then you're talking about uh, automatic uh, content uh, generation, right? Not just backgrounds, but also plots and uh, action and everything. I, I think that's coming, you know, the, the quality of it, it will probably be a lot longer away, but I think that's coming and coming faster than we all could possibly imagine. This is one of those areas where, unlike self-driving cars, where the logistics for everybody to actually get a self-driving car is pretty hard to figure out, the logistics around AI storytelling, not hard to figure out. We are at the cusp of it today. You add that in with also what happens when we add in things like deep fakes and synthetic characters. Will we be able to have original, original stories that look like they're starring our favorite actors and actresses, combine some de-aging? Like, can someone go write a, a, another prequel to another prequel to another prequel? We can actually have a CGI, an AI-driven character that looks like Mark Hamill's grandfather might have looked like? I, you know, I don't know. But doesn't seem far-fetched anymore, right? No, not at all. So, you know, we're we're all video people here, and this is the Video Insiders, and Dora and I are primarily focused in the codec and encoding. A lot of our listeners are, too. You know, what really sticks out to me is, is, is that these kinds of experiences you're talking about are going to drive a whole new way that we're going to have to encode and distribute content because now it's not, it's not even going to be possible to be file-based because it's all real time. So now we're going to be in interactive experiences where everything is effectively real time. It's going to be much closer to like a cloud gaming platform. You won't necessarily need the, you know, 30 millisecond end-to-end latency, you know, which is good so that's how you could pull this off and still be cost effective but um it's going to be a one-to-one video stream you know and maybe not always because you know you could have synthetic characters where you know every day the story changes and you know it's the story that day but i think people would pay a premium to have a personalized experience or be able to interact with it well i think that's that's dead on and i think but building on that one, we'll still have shared experiences because humans crave them, right? Sure, sure, sure. And, and the art of filmmaking, you know, I mean, yeah, in no way, and I'm sure you would agree with this kind of being at Warner or even if you weren't, you know, th- there still is an art of filmmaking that that I think will always be appreciated. You know, I, I don't see that just suddenly going away. Absolutely agree. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't mean in any way that it replaces. I think it just more extends I think on the notion of like the the deeper tech, the the codecs, the files, et cetera. But this is where the capacity of doing things in a multi to multi way becomes really interesting, right? So can can Mark be having a bespoke experience of some original piece of content and then decide he wants to share it with some community, right? So what kind of technology is going to be needed to say, you know, 17 of Mark's friends are going to join in on that experience, right? Are we going to be watching movies, quote, movies, uh, inside of a Fortnite-like experience? Have you guys seen the Travis Scott concert at for- in Fortnite? I saw just a little piece of it. I would give the YouTube version of it a little watch uh, and know this, that 43 million people have experienced the Travis Scott concert inside Fortnite. And when I think about the future of 
like like you're asking there like is this going to be in a file or a stream i look at it like how are we going to render a movie in real time inside maybe a, a, a third-party landscape while people are doing some other activity uh and how, what is the tech it takes to make that happen but I, I would not be surprised, given the moves that companies like mine are making and others, I wouldn't be surprised to see a film debut on a video inside a video game. Not like the way they handled uh, Star Wars 9 a couple of years back, uh, which I think was just a slight miss on, on having a trailer drop inside of Fortnite. But I think, what if you could allow an audience to watch a movie in a semi-private setting, paid for the experience, and watch it who, with who they want in whatever venue, character, angle they want, but also then have like the director. Could we have had Patty from Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins, um, host a session in Fortnite watching the movie? She's doing a real time live Q and A. Maybe have the cast there, all virtual, all from our own homes. You know, in the future when we're back out of pandemic, can some people be experiencing something in a in the future of whatever a movie theater is, while other people are doing it at home, while yet other people are doing it from their phone on the bus? Uh, so I think going down to that deep tech level, we're going to need to figure that all out. We're going to need to figure out how to enable all that because what I just described, some of those experiments will happen and fail, but some of them will succeed, right? We're, we have to be braced for that. And so those of you who are out there building the, the hardcore tech to make all these kind of things work, I think thinking as, as Mark said, one-to-one, -one, but also as one-to-many and as many-to-one are going to be all of the different types of experiences that we'll be seeing emerge over the next few years. And how cool would it be, you know, so it's no secret Twitch and, and any of the other platforms where you're watching people play games, you know, that's had massive appeal, but that's still, you're outside of the video screen. How cool would it be to be watching that same gameplay, but be inside the game? Like literally you're inside the game with the characters as they're being played and you're able to, you know, to, to walk around, you're able to experience like for me personally, I just don't get the whole watching someone play video games. But if I could be inside the game with all the gameplay literally happening around me, I think I could probably get into that. And really it's just the interactivity of it that I think is going to draw everybody into these new, you know, whether it's movies that, you know, I can somehow affect the plot and the storyline or whether it's games that now I'm able to go into the world and, you know, and either, you know, obviously if you're playing the game, of course you're in the world, but I'm talking about where you're an audience, you know, member, really, really exciting. Jeremy, um, wow. 2021 is going to be full of innovation and we're just getting started. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is a fun, exciting year. I, I loved everything you were just saying, by the way, about being inside the game. By the way, I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I'm not a big Twitch user, but I think to this next generation, um, let's call it like sub-millennial age, I think it's going to be as natural to watch other people play everything from Fortnite to League of Legends, et cetera, to PUBG and Fall Guys, as it is as it has been for us to watch baseball, football, and hockey. Uh, I made a prediction, I think it was about five years ago, that, that esports will rapidly overtake at least baseball. And I think we're going to see that eclipse all of sports in the not-too-distant future. Because when you can watch the best people in the world at a thing, anytime you want, from the comfort of your own wherever on any device and the whole thing only lasts like 10 minutes and not like three hours. I think that's a much more um, future looking pattern than I think we, we the, you and I might be on the sidelines for, but will definitely be a real thing. <laughs>
Um, what do you think are the main technologies that are missing in order to make this vision uh, uh, come true? Is it uh, the connectivity? Is it bandwidth? Is it CPU power? Um, is it, you know, bunches and bunches of software protocols? What would be the biggest roadblock on our way to this vision? Am I cheating if I just say yes to all of the above? Yeah, I think everything. <laughs> we, we see this all the time in the tech industry, right? You, you guys have been through this before as well. Like you see that the, the concepts have reached the point where the entire infrastructure needs to like get up. Like we had mobile apps 20 years ago. They just weren't very good. And the phones that they could work on weren't very good. And the bandwidth wasn't very good. Today, those things are all great. So I, I'd sort of look at the flip to that question, what does it take? Like, do we need more infrastructure to have 20 million people do a thing at the same time in the same shared experience? No, we're already there. That's, that is Fortnite. We've already got, you know, and, and Minecraft and Roblox and Fall Guys and so many shared experiences are now scaled in massive, massive ways. Uh, I think we need the experiences. I think we need the content creators. I think we do need some next generations on some of that deep tech. Um, I think we need to see continued things like 5G rollouts, more Fios to the home. So it's sort of yes and more of all of the above. But the reality, like branching narrative storytelling, we're already there. Virtual storytelling, we're already there. VR, Good VR experiences, we're already there. I think a lot of what we're going to see next is this is the time for the, the creatives, the innovators who are going to start piecing these things together to make really interesting experiences for us to all consume. So I, I think actually it's a... Yes, we need it all to be more and better. And what we have today is not fully tapped into from what people could be doing with it. I see. So you will also need uh, those innovative minds to make use of technology that we have available to us today uh, in order to create a new experience and, you know, kind of start exploring these new fields. Yeah, like you think about whoever thought up, and I know there were versions before, but like the, the profound impact a Pokemon Go had on you know virtual AR experiences, right? I say AR fully benefited from Pokemon Go. And then we have things like Fortnite introduced Battle Royale. Well, it didn't actually, it wasn't the first to do a Battle Royale style thing for video games. Now we have many of them, right? Like we, we see one, one first innovation and then a whole bunch of follow-ons and copycats. And then we see kind of the next level innovation on top of that. So I would kind of look at it through those kind of lenses. Like what are the things we're seeing people trying now, doing experiments, the first time we saw someone do X, like, you you know, you even look at things like Cameo and OnlyFans and what they're doing for kind of one-to-one -one video services for people in different ways. What is that going to lead to, right? Because they'll all lead to some new thing. And, and that's, I, I find, super exciting to watch. Yeah, and it will take some brave souls to risk a little bit, too. You know, it feels like sometimes we love to, you know, talk about all the cool tech that's coming and then we all retreat back to using um, the standards and the technologies that in some cases are almost 20 years old now. Which is the natural way of things, right? It's a natural and, and, you know, and in all defense, you know, for those, you know, is at the same time, it, it is very different when, you know, when you have 20 million users and they have expectations, you can't take the risk, you know, um, or you have to be very, you know, very cautious. So I, we all understand that, but. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, we are talking about the industry that I think in certain uh, cases is a little bit um, conservative, a little bit risk adverse, you know, and maybe a little too much so. 
Um, but those who step out uh, and really begin to uh, risk a little bit and build these innovative experiences as the consumer experiences them and, and, and jumps on and gets excited, it doesn't take long for everybody else to follow. <laughs> So things can flip really quick as well. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Like, uh, by the way, one of the companies I would be paying a lot of attention to right now because they are doing some crazy things around immersive experiences is actually Snapchat. Uh, if you haven't seen any of their, uh, the massive augmented reality experiences, like they did a takeover of, of buildings Um not to be self-serving, but the one that comes to mind, like they did a thing where if you're in Manhattan, this was uh, two years ago, and you pointed the Snapchat AR lens at the uh, Flatiron building, uh, the Game of Thrones dragons would take it, would be on top of it or something like that. And the whole building would turn to frost. Uh, they now have this whole thing of painting shared landscapes. So we're going to see a bunch of that happen. And then we're going to see the next thing that sits on top of that. And that's also just going to be crazy exciting. By the way, back onto the... Um, file formats and whatnot area. I think one of the areas that, that there's going to be a lot of innovation and, and need for standardization over the next couple of years is what the heck are we going to do with all of these different kinds of uh, virtual blobs, for lack of a better word, right? That we're seeing there's some competing standards and then some, some um, collaborative standards, but making sure that there aren't kind of artificial hurdles for the innovators, for the storytellers, for the creators, to use all of these tools to push that envelope is going to be super important. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jeremy. A lot of fun. Thanks. Fun talking to you guys as well. Yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation and kind of a glimpse into the future, uh, which looks amazing. And, and we're very excited about that. So uh, we'd like to uh, thank you, Jeremy, for joining us today on the Video Insiders. Well, thanks for including me. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.